And now, business games. Welcome to Business Games, a podcast where we teach strategic thinking as applied to business. Now, of course, what happened in 2022 is that there's been, a, I think, a massive realization that a business does not live in and of itself. It's connected to the economy. The economy is connected to geopolitics. And inevitably, we've expanded this podcast to talk about strategy in the wider context, also in the geopolitical sense. We've also noted that in order to design a good strategy, you need to understand where you are. And in order to understand where you are, you need to be able to understand, to get the relevant information. And so today we are joined by Shay Bowes from Ireland, who is an independent journalist and an entrepreneur. Hi, Shay. Hey, Andre. Thanks for asking me on. I will give a longish introduction also, you know, as to why I reached out and a little bit of uh, my personal background, because the topic that we're going to discuss is uh, somewhat personal to me. And so, and and it's also a, a very emotional topic, I think, for, for a lot of people. And um, I would also like to claim that for many people for whom it is an emotional topic, they don't actually understand why it why it is an important topic for them because there's been a lot of mis and disinformation. So by way of introduction, so okay, so I'll tell you and the audience at the same time the the arch of this. So we'll start with the intro. I'll tell you what brings me to looking at this thing uh, in particular, and then I will share with the audience why I reached out to you and maybe you could uh, say a bit about yourself and what brought you to to be um, to be writing the article and um, publishing stuff on uh, on social media and um, such that we kind of all understand where uh, we are coming from you and I so then uh, sure. I would like to talk about the uh, the article that uh, brought me to this uh, to this discussion I have a couple of questions there. Then we can uh, talk about the absolute truth and the presentation of what you call the absolute truth in the media, which is basically a complete reduction of a very complex matter to really, like, I've never seen more black and white coverage of anything, to be honest with you. A, dr- a drive-through narrative, I like to call yeah. it. Yeah, so, so it, it's... Uh, the the way that people have simplified it, or the, you know, so we'll, we'll talk about is this? I would like to pose a question: like, is this malice or is it incompetence or is it a bit of both? Then I'll reference a couple of things in the article. I have one question which will make no sense now, but it will make sense when I ask it. And then I'll ask: Is there hope? And what do we do? Yeah. So in 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 the face of the uh, mainstream media. A really one-sided narrative like is is there hope and if if not or how can we uh, address it as individuals and also as a society if 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 at all possible so a bit about me so i was born in soviet union on the territory of the what's currently south south ukraine um i left ukraine with my family when i was 15 or rather my family left and i was with them i guess and I love the independent Ukraine. So I remember a little bit of the 80s, 
I was 10 when the change happened. And I definitely remember the changeover and the change of narratives and the way that we, what we were taught at school and how that changed. And I think that's very, very relevant. Um, I grew up in New Zealand. I've never been back, uh, but uh, we uh, still have relatives there, have a lot of family friends. I uh, still keep in touch with some of my classmates from, from way back. I was, as I say, I was 15 and sort of at 15, you, you, you still, you know, you can, you can already keep those, some of those relationships through the, through the years. I grew up in New Zealand. I spent all my 20s in Germany. I was actually a very, I would say, mid-core Ukrainian nationalist, uh, I, even though Ukrainian is not my native language, but I would argue with my parents. I, I come from a city which, uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, there was not a single person that I knew who would speak Ukrainian in there. Like, I just never heard Ukrainian on the street, and I was walking the streets. It's a half a million city. Uh, so, and, and yet, when the changeover happened, we were, there were a lot of, um, we, we were starting to be taught how... Ukrainians were oppressed by the Russians. Russia was the enemy. La da da da. Uh, we were starting to be taught disliking Russians. We were making jokes about killing Russians, just for no other reason that they were Russians. And uh, I would argue with my parents that uh, Ukraine needs one language, uh, even though, as as, as late as uh, two thousand nine, survey by a Ukrainian company of Ukrainians found out that there were more people who were proficient in Russian than there were people who were proficient in Ukrainian, in Ukraine. But, but I would argue for one language and so on and so forth. I was also supporting the Orange Revolution. Then, of course, after after that, the Yushchenko government uh, got, you know, turned out it was a very corrupt government and uh, basically people voted them out at the next uh, possibility. And then the Maidan came. And during the Maidan... Um, violence occurred and what used to be jokes um you know about killing russians were actually you know turned into into uh, into a civil war and i there's no other way like being ukrainian i i know it is a civil war it is a civil war there's no other way to yeah. describe it the fact that uh the ukrainian government basically outlaws it being called a civil war uh does not change the fact that it is a civil war um the country was basically divided i mean there were probably more people looking at looking at the proportions of who voted for yanukovych uh with and and the split is just just kind of by the by the dnieper river and um, and the south so the southeast yeah. uh it, it's it's undeniable that there were more people against the maidan than there were for maidan the reason that maidan happened yeah. was because there was a small uh, minority of um very, very vocal and very well funded very, and well well backed uh, yes and also very violent and uh, basically yeah. uh, ide ideologically driven who were not, you know, people who were not afraid to use violence and to, you know, yeah. to get to get hurt for it. And so... Which was uh, the genesis so of, the, and then, of the... Yeah. And so anything that happened... And that... And, and, and I... I cannot stress this enough because people are saying, well, Russia did this, Russia did that. Russia did not organize the coup. Everything that followed was a response to 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 the to the coup d'état, which was unconstitutional, and that's yeah. that's just a fact. And that also the fact that that was funded by the U.S. 
uh, even you know up to and including uh, Victoria Nuland's uh, infamous uh, call to the uh, to the ambassador in Kiev, uh, talking about uh, who they should install as a as a puppet government. Uh, Yats is the man. Yeah, exactly. And where she said, "Fuck the EU." So I, I, yeah. I like that 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 version of events is so uh, like un- that is so black and white that I don't know how. And yet we're living in a world where none of that happened, where Russia is the aggressor. And yeah, well, this is the absolute truth. You see, this is the yeah. key of it. This is the core of I, the ideology. So one one more bit, right? Is that uh, basically at 2014? I I I went. No, I I do not like. Sorry, no. This this is where like my Ukrainian nationalism, you know, stops at killing people. That's that's just I can, like I don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, that's not the country I recognize anymore. And I just uh, you know, and I was also like I had to review some of my. It's like mm, okay. Um, you know, if you're young and idealistic, and then at some stage, with the benefit of hindsight, you you realize that oh no, there were actually like long-term macro forces at play, certain trends that were going in in some direction. I don't know what would have happened to me had I stayed, but luckily I didn't stay, and so then I um, stopped uh, following Ukraine. Um, we would still talk to our friends, but not really, you know, discuss much and then of course the february this year happened and it uh, it hit me very hard i didn't expect that and uh, then the war came also to my birth town eventually and uh, we have relatives who live in the south of ukraine so they're currently living at or near the front lines and uh, i was uh, perturbed by many different things. So first of all, obviously, whenever you know your uh, the bombs are uh, falling, you know, <laughs> to the street where you you used to live, like that's that's a shock. Yeah. I also quickly realized and started researching that um, there were, you know, like many different conflicts that even I remember, starting with Yugoslavia, Iraq, Syria, Libya, where you know you you, you look at them and they're a little bit abstract. Um, and then I started realizing, oh, now I understand how uh, some of those people felt or how their relatives abroad felt. Um, yeah. The uh, and 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 you know the bloodiest war, which was I think the the first and second Congolese war, right, where uh, five million people died that nobody talks about, mm. but that 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 was that was a massive thing. So. So that happened, and of course, after a while, I started thinking, okay, so what is the... Because, you know, partly for my sanity, partly for... Um, because where I'm coming from is is I I care not at all for the politicians. Uh, I do care about the civilians because these are the, the my relatives who live there. And so I started thinking, okay, first of all, I want to understand, you know, let's approach it as a, um, uh, as a strategist. So how did we get here? Where are we? How did we get here? How do we get out of here? What are the like other other policies that um, that I'm seeing uh, being applied? Are they in the best interest of the Ukrainian people? So once I calmed down and started analyzing it, I, I was very well aware of my own biases and and uh, but at the same time, I am not in Ukraine now and I have not been for a long time. So I do believe that I have a f- that I can deal with those biases and I can also. 
I have the benefit of being connected, but not too connected, if that makes sense. So I can still keep the distance yeah. in a way, but at the same time, I understand all the languages. I, I was yeah. growing up there at some stage and I sort of understand, I understand their underlying forces and I can look at it from, from multiple levels. And so, and there are many, many levels, but yeah. I think it's fair to say that no matter which level, so there is the, the geopolitical level, uh, then there is the Ukrainian level and there is, a, yeah. you know, inside Ukraine, various groups and so on and so forth. I think no matter the level that you look at, uh, the unfortunate situation is that the common Ukrainians get screwed. And I also, through all of this, I kind of came to the conclusion that, uh, which, which is another thing that I would like to, I didn't make a plan, but I think I think we should talk about it. So it's it's very obvious to me, and I don't understand how it's not obvious to smart people, that, that if you look at, at the actions that the Western governments are undertaking, what they're saying is that they're supporting Ukraine. But if you think about it, or well, Ukrainian uh, civilians, but if you think about it, everything that they're doing is prolonging the conflict, is making it bloodier, is creating a larger humanitarian catastrophe. And none of that is in the interest of the Ukrainian people. It is in the interest of uh, Zelensky regime, which, uh, which, which I maintain is one of the most corrupt regimes in, in, the, in the world and now one of the most bloodiest ones. And also, it, it is it fits with the narrative that um, uh, that that and that that had been voiced by people that uh, like uh, even um, I think Hillary Clinton and you know and Ursula von der Leyen and, and various others that are saying that their their yeah, goal I is mean, to bleed yeah. Russia, right? So yeah, so that's that's yeah. that's where I'm coming from, uh, and I just just a second before you jump in, so. I observed also, and I was fairly shocked. I think I was starting getting a little bit cynical, maybe, or growing up, uh, you know, from my uh, youthful uh, absolutism already. But I, I still, I was not expecting that there would be such a one-sided uh, and blatantly, like up to up to provable lies um, narrative about yeah. about the situation so that shocked me and then of course i started finding various articles like like yours and there i thought oh okay so there are there are people talking about it uh and let me try and reach out and and talk to people who are talking about it from a you know what i consider to be a uh, a more objective uh angle so that's how we came to this conversation. Sorry, that was a long, a long preamble. But I think it's um, I'm, I'm I'm quite I'm quite open about that. I'm biased, but I'm you know I'm just stating my bias. Uh, yeah. Well, I have similar I have similar declarations that I'd have to make, Andre, which would be firstly that my wife right. is is an ethnic Russian. Uh, that's how she would describe herself. She's from a place which borders Ukraine. Yeah, Prednistrovia or Transnistria, which is essentially a sliver of land, uh, uh, which which borders the uh, western Ukrainian border, uh, and is divided from the rest of Moldova um, um, by by uh, a, a river, also like the like the Severodonetsk, and it, it, rivers seem to be featuring very heavily at the moment. So essentially, that small de facto state came into being back in the 90s when in my view when the the foundations were laid for much of the this conflict yep. was essentially the collapse of the soviet union so 
there's two there's a yep. big piece to look at at this strategically and a smaller piece so the, the big piece would be that um it's interesting that gorbachev recently died and you know uh, i was i was commenting online that so many people in the west were lauding gorbachev as this arbiter and this magnificent human being of freedom but most of the people I know in Russia, and I know a lot of people in Russia, I've been to Russia, I've traveled in Russia. I speak a little bit of the language. As I say, my wife was Russian. My children are uh, bilingual and uh, bicultural, if you like. So um, it was interesting to see how the Western press portrayed Gorbachev as this uh, the man who tore down that wall, as, as Ronald Reagan uh, suggested. But he's seen in, in, in Russia by a significant proportion of the population who were over 35, 40 years of age, probably, as a man who essentially walked off the field and handed the Soviet Union and its bountiful potential, basically to Western, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, players, who then obviously worked with um, local oligarchs to basically strip the, the meat from the bones of the Soviet Union. But what, what, what also happened at that time was a significant population of people who would consider themselves Russian, ethnic Russian, uh, Russian speakers, uh, like the people of, uh, you know, of Ukraine who are, find themselves in the LPR and the DPR and these self-declared republics, like a significant population in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Um, they found themselves outside of the protection of of. of the Soviet Union, because it ceased to exist overnight, which was a very traumatic event. Again, another thing that most of the commentators who issue these decrees of knowledge about what's happening in Russia uh, um, are very ignorant about. So we'll talk about ignorance and how ignorance is used to parse complex information about a place, a people, a culture to get to a good guy, bad guy narrative. We can talk about that in a while. But getting back to that seminal event, which was the collapse of the Soviet Union, significant populations of people who consider themselves Russian, um, uh, ethnically, uh, culturally, I would suggest that you may have been one of those people in some to some degree. And it, Ukraine itself is stratified very unusually as well. In, that in the East, you've got people who consider themselves absolutely Russian, probably. Then as you move towards the center, you've got people who, who are sort of a la carte, Ukrainian and Russian. They would have spoke a little of Ukrainian. They would have spoke Russian mostly. They would just got along. And then as you move towards the West, places like Lvov and Transcarpathia, you've got people who probably consider themselves uh, maybe Romanian slash uh, Polo-Lithuanian uh, Ukrainian. So it's a very stratified, very complex situation. So going back to Gorbachev, when Gorbachev basically, I think, became uh, fell under the spell of his Western partners, that all you needed to do to fix the problems of the Soviet Union and all you needed to do to, to sort of uh, diffuse this potential uh, schism, uh, global schism between communism and, and capitalism, the ancient sort of battle between these two titans, all you really needed to do was to open a few Burger Kings, uh, let a few guys move in from, from the West. Uh, all the queues would, would disappear for bread. Everyone would have their pizza hut as he famously did his Pizza Hut advert, which people constantly refer to. Um, and that would be it. You know, we'd all shake hands. Everyone would be happy. Um, there wouldn't be no lid lifted on ancient, complex cultural uh, divisions. Like, you know, you, you look at the moment at Abkhazia, you look at the moment at Armenia, Kazakhstan, 
Tajikistan. You're looking at all these very complex republics. Like the Soviet Union was a place with, with you know, dozens of cultures, dozens of langu- languages. A very, very oh, complex hundreds. place. But it, even it, during it's, Soviet it's, times, it's in over, the West, Russia right yeah. now has something like 120 uh, ethnicities and and various languages, which yeah, and 12 time zones, I think, as well. Like it's a continent. And I mean, this is this also speaks to the idea that Russia now wants to take over Estonia because it needs Estonia, right? It needs Lithuania. I mean, I mean, this is you'll hear this in the press. Putin now wants to expand into the to the borders of the old Russian Empire. It's it's ludicrous. But going back again, let's just get get people on board with the complexity. So you, you you're looking at this post-Soviet space where. You know, we saw a lot of these um, post-Soviet conflicts erupt, like you, the Yugoslav Wars, and um, which were directly linked, in my view, to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the very clumsy way in which the West managed that collapse. First of all, they propagated it. So what's happened here? So I'll give you an analogy. You go to your neighbor's house, right? You don't like him. You don't like the way he looks. You don't like the way he thinks, okay? He's a big guy. He's like you. So he's not a kind of guy you can really walk up to and punch because you probably beat the crap out of you. Okay, so that was the Soviet Union and the United States slash NATO. So there was this balance. And there was also geopolitical uh, pragmatism because nobody on either side of the Soviet uh, uh, diplomatic uh, core or on the Western side really wanted a nuclear war because it was mutually assured destruction. So what happened was the Soviet Union was, was slowly undermined. Now, the Soviet Union, of course, imperfect, a lot of corruption, a lot of problems, a vast nation. Uh, uh, attempting to sort of compete with a very aggressive capitalist system. There was only really going to be one outcome if they didn't maneuver or or pivot towards a Chinese type of communism, which the Chinese watched what happened in the Soviet Union. That's why China is now an economic powerhouse, but it's still a communist state, because they watched what happened to the Soviet Union, and they said, well, that's not going to be the, the spike that we fall onto. So, But as the West undermined and competed and, and, you know, covertly and overtly started wars like the one in Afghanistan, where they funded the Mujahideen and gave them Stinger missiles, which were then subsequently somewhere used to shoot down American helicopters when the Americans went in and left after 20 years and $3 trillion and, you know, a a, a catastrophic uh, reliving of the Soviet escapade. Uh, You know, after they'd set the, the stage for this collapse, they actually celebrated the collapse. They declared it a win. We've beaten the Soviet Union. And now all we need to do, as, as I said, is go in, open a few Burger Kings, a few Pizza Huts, send a few of our management guys in. The people will welcome us with open arms and it will all be fixed. I'll be fine. And that was the drive through narrative that was presented to the West, that the evil empire had been defeated and the future was bright for, for the peoples of the Soviet Union who had now dispersed into their uh, relative republics. And that would be it. It was We'd all live happily ever after, which, of course, is an de- absolutely delusional and uh, flawed uh, ideology. And if you listen to people like uh, the great John Mersheimer uh, and uh, Stephen Cohen, I mean, they were, they've been signposting this stuff for years, okay? Now, what happened to those individual peoples who were left isolated in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania? Let's pick a few um say, Transnistria or Prednistrovia, where my wife is from, um, these peoples had, had migrated within the Soviet Union from Siberia to uh, Western Ukraine. I mean, people traveled and moved. Engineers moved from Crimea to uh, Estonia, from Kaliningrad to uh, the other side, to the, to the border with Japan and, uh, and, uh, uh, and China. 
So it was a very fluid place where people moved and people actually began to, to lose touch with racism and they began to lose touch with uh, the idea that they were competing with these constituent republics. And they actually absorbed and acknowledged a lot of each other's cultures. So that's one thing about the Soviet Union, which I think is often overlooked, that these myriad of different religious groups, uh, cultures, languages actually did dwell and live for the most part in, in significant peace for a long time, for about 70 years, essentially. When the lid was lifted off this or torn off... As, as a reference, uh, my father backed back through uh, Caucasus, through through Siberia, you know, like he backed back basically through all of the Soviet Union when he was a, you know, a student. And yeah. this was just like, it was the safest place and people really got along. Go on. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I mean, my own, my, my own kid's grandfather was from... Crimea. He was born in Crimea, but he helped build a railway out in the in the east of the Soviet Union. I think that's where uh, 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 he met many of his best friends for life because there was this ideology. Uh, I mean, now we're not. I'm not a proponent for the for the Soviet Union. I'm not a communist uh, by any means. But I'm trying to say we can't dispel the reality that you know um, uh, that there isn't a shared history among these peoples, which is central to the reasons why we're in the problems we're in today. So if you look at these uh, people in Russia, what Russians would call the near abroad, um, there's been a sense of uh, consternation and worry about these peoples within Russia, I'd say, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Russia went through terrible social and economic uh, privations and difficulties post the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was a period of great lawlessness in these republics. There was a huge amount of crime. Remember, people's lives disappeared overnight. People's bank accounts disappeared. Their whole identity, I mean, the country people were born in, disappeared overnight. As a a reference, this is what I was looking up right now. Uh, Life expectancy in Russia and Ukraine, uh, it dropped by uh, somewhere between three to five years. Uh, and uh, the child mortality skyrocketed. Yeah. Uh, you know, death rates skyrocketed. The uh, you 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 had a actually, if you were to calculate the loss of life purely driven by the collapse of the healthcare system, um, increased child mortality. Just just as that's these are like these are not invented. UN numbers, right? With uh, they're they're accepted numbers there there was a yeah. well an economic driven if you if you want genocide of the on the on the post-soviet space if you calculate that i honestly you know apart from the fact that it led to the rise of oligarchy and uh, and and then then I cannot find much good that came from the from the you know it's very easy to break it to to trash a system it's very easy to break a system there was nothing built on that and there was yeah. the, the 90s were very much it was a horrible time yeah. with loss of life there were tangible tangible serious life related life and death issues and so yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think it's critical to understand that when you look at the ideology and the psychology of the post-Soviet states, how they evolved, uh, how they felt they had to either swing very radically towards the uh, the West, as the Baltic states did, um, um, the Balkan states went through a terrible war 
where we saw the resurgence of, of ethno-nationalism in places like Croatia, Serbia. We saw NATO attack uh, Serbia. Uh, we saw Russia sort of standing back thinking, you know, I think from some of the studies I've done and some of the stuff I've written, I've, I've researched all of this, that there was huge angst in Russia w- when they saw Serbia attacked by NATO. Um, and that sort of knits in again to to the initial uh, approaches of Russia post-Soviet times that, look, okay, NATO exists. It existed to counter Soviet the Soviet Union, the communist ideology, this red wall that was coming at you. We, we've, you know, we've terminated the, the, the Warsaw Pact. We're no longer a communist state. So we've taken our pieces off the chessboard. NATO needs to take its pieces off the chessboard. That was the seminal pivot moment for us to have a potentially, uh, you know, viable and you know workable peace between these two uh, great powers, if you like. Uh, let's call Russia the central power, and and America the other. But that 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 essentially, uh, when Russia did genuinely move towards that sort of détente with the West, that hand of friendship was essentially slapped away. It was slapped away in a in a quite a, a, a cynical way as well. I mean. Uh, Vladimir Putin made some very, very, very interesting speeches um, to his peers in NATO. I remember watching John McCain and some of these other key hawkish figures, sort of like laughing at Putin essentially, while he said, "You know, we've we've uh, we've done our part. You know, we're going to try to rationalize and uh, liberalize Russia to some extent," uh, and that was kind of laughed at. Russia was seen not anymore as a great threat. And a great power to be respected, it was seen as a basket case to be economically exploited, and uh, to be you know a supplicant to 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 the to the Western powers. And the fact that NATO persisted and existed um, in that period is very interesting. If you actually break down the realities of that, nobody's ever been able to answer to me why NATO still existed after the fall of the Soviet Union. Nobody's ever been able to explain that to me in any real defensible way. And I mean, the reason it probably persisted was because these big machines that, that exist on the basis of fear, when, you, when your whole existence is predicated on the rationalization and the propagation of fear, which they don't, it was about the Russians are going to come, they're going to eat your babies, uh, they're going to rape everybody in, in town. I mean, we're getting a lot of this right now, you know. Just being Russian means you're a rapist, you're, you eat children. All this, you know, frankly, ludicrous ideology. It's the same ideology that drove the anti-communist. There's a red under your better red, dead than red. Uh, communist. So when that, suddenly the, the, the threat disappeared and an opportunity to deploy all the resources of NATO and of Western economies like America, like the Marshall Plan. Where, where was the Marshall Plan? that rescued the Nazis, uh, Nazi Germany post-war. Where was the Marshall Plan for the Soviet Union? No. I've often asked this question to people who say, oh, you know, we, we offered the hand of pre- friendship. Well, the hand of friendship, well, well it, where was the Marshall Plan for the Soviet Union? An actual continent, a nuclear-armed continent, which was facing significant problems. If you think about it, the Marshall Plan was uh, designed not to help uh, Germany or Europe. It was designed to drive out the influence of the communists in Belgium, Belgium, Germany, uh, France, and so Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. But it also offered practical economic help to take people off the breadlines and to rebuild the cities. And I think the individual, the, ind- the ordinary German in the street would have probably said, I'll take the Marshall Plan. Because, yeah, you know, ab- absolutely. 
yeah. but the only reason why that existed was the existence of the Soviet Union. And and so why you yeah, know that's exactly. that's why there would never have been a Marshall Plan for the post-Soviet republics because because they they couldn't. Well, that's why uh, that's why Nancy Pelosi has arrived in in Armenia, a Russian a Russian ally for a long-term Russian ally. Nancy Pelosi turned up yesterday, uh, crying at the uh, genocide memorial. I saw her actually shedding a tear. I mean, I don't think Nancy Pelosi has has much Armenian. Uh, family connections, but she's there crying. She turns up in Taiwan. Um, you know, um, she's obviously a woman very interested in geopolitics, or she's being dispatched as some sort of uh, harbinger of oncoming doom. That uh, you know, we're going to come now and we're going to help our media where Russia has failed to protect it from from its uh, its its uh, its uh, Turkish allied uh, friends. So geopolitics is is always happening. It's always happening in you, the background. You studied, but I just want to return right? to the point about. Building, building this sort of scaffolding on which your understanding, people's understanding, um, can can be built, so they can make objective, informed decisions about what's actually happening in Ukraine. The single biggest mistake anybody can make when it comes to the current conflict in Ukraine is to actually believe that this war began on the twenty fourth of February uh, this year. That's the, that's your fundamental mistake. That's like suggesting. That if you know I drill under my house and hollow out all the foundations and my house collapses, that the house collapse was purely due to the collapse of the house. So we're not going to look. It's like a, a person turns up in a mortuary and we say, okay, well, you know, he's got you know heart disease, liver failure, uh, cancer, he's, he's bone disease. He's totally, but he's dead. But his death began with his death. This is the actual rationale of of the absolute truth, people. So this guy just died. He just died on the 24th of February. So it's a murder. What happened prior to that, the extenuating circumstances, the cultivation of the conditions for the murder, the fact that this man was tortured and uh, attacked daily for his whole 50 years of his life, the fact that um, people intended for him to die by murder, it only began with the actual death. And if you look beyond that actual death on that date, let's call it the 24th of February, you are that, complicit you're, you're, yeah. in that murder. Yep. That's an agent. That's it. So that's it in a nutshell. So people might have to listen back to that and say, okay, let me get my head around this. So what, what I'm saying is we're, we've started to tell people when it comes to history, geopolitics, strategy, and, and, and modern warfare and the two huge poles that are competing here. We started to tell people that the conditions whereby events occur are irrelevant to the event. Therefore, if we apply the same rationale to what's happened in Ukraine, um, what, you know, carbon emissions, get out and drive your car. Put let's, let's go straight back to coal because the actions that lead to an event are irrelevant now. So we might as well just start burning coal. Let's let's go for it. Let's, you know, we should all start smoking cigarettes because when we get cancer, that event will only be really linked to the event, and that's the problem we're, we're looking at. People are not interrogating the the reasons and the 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 rationales and the facts that have led us to a single event, which has become the defining event of this whole uh, sorry affair. Why do you think? It's so easy to manipulate people. Let me expand on that. It's going to be a multi, uh, it sounds like a simple question, but there will be more more layers to it. 
So um, everything that you say makes absolute sense, right? I mean, it's logical. Like, how can it not? It, it, it's anybody who believes in a way that Putin just woke up one day and decided to bring back the empire and said, okay, I'm going to attack Ukraine and it's going to be unprovoked and I'm just, ugh, I don't like Ukraine. Uh, it, it, it's insane. It, it, it's just, it, it, it makes no sense whatsoever to, like, if you think... Uh, well, let me, just, let me just add to that point for you and for the listeners particularly. Since 2014, yes. this civil war has been raging where an ethnic, ethnic Russian minority, a very nationalistic in some parts, uh, um, Russian minority, who refused to accede to the demands of the Maidan coup, and said, look, we don't want to be Russian. We don't want to be independent. We just want to be able to speak our language. And we just want to, our culture and our history of our forefathers preserved. That was, the, that was the view. And that's absolutely true. Remember, that small group, okay, were unaided essentially by Russia for a long time. Vladimir Putin didn't recognize these uh, republics when they were declared. He engaged with the Minsk Accords. He engaged with the diplomatic process. And that's absolutely undisputable. Nobody can dispute that. Russia did not immediately begin to send military or financial aid to, to the Donbass. That is a fact. So let's, I'll let you continue now. Sorry, Andre. Uh, yeah, and yet people do. But people do dispute that. I have very intelligent people who, who claim to me that Russia was the one who sabotaged the Minsk Accords and Russia was the one who basically instigated the whole thing and, and Russia was this and Russia was that and it's all Russia, right? And, and, and there is there's no, like, I cannot seem to break through to them because there, there is a fundamental, uh, th there are some fundamental truths that people are not comfortable admitting to themselves. And that fundamental truth is this. Anything, basically, they come to, to this. Anything coming from Kremlin is a lie because it's Kremlin. That's it. There's like, there's, there's no other, there's no other. You give Absolutely, them yeah. a evidence and they go, no. And you go like, that makes no sense. And they say, yes, yeah. it does. Because, and I say, why? It doesn't make sense. If you're a rational person, you wouldn't behave that way. At well, it's, it's the, 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 the rationale now is that any, Russia is incapable of doing yeah. any good. A Russian father is incapable of loving his children. A Russian mother is incapable of, of, of telling the truth. That this is about the hollowing out of a people. And I think it's about the hollowing out of a, of a brand. The brand of Russia in the West has been willfully very well funded by CIA cutouts, by the media in particular, to suggest that any harm done to any Russian is acceptable now. I mean, and this is another terrifying uh, manifestation of essentially what's hundreds of years of Western anti-Russian bias, racism and xenophobia. I mean, the first um, sort of interactions the British would have had really on the battlefield or, you know, geopolitically, one of them was it was in Afghanistan when the British invaded Afghanistan because they believed that the Russians were going to invade Afghanistan, uh, uh, which was totally incorrect but that was where the term jingoism came from from um you know this fear of this great russian bear that was going to come and tear everyone apart and eat them alive i mean so it's been convenient for the western media to suggest that vladimir putin is a vampire um and it's been convenient for the western media to suggest that uh, deployment of a massive army of anonymous middle-aged men uh, online this nafo stuff these pitiful people who go online anonymously to attack anyone who dissents from the view 
That in the Washington Post describes those as a noble group of, of individuals who deployed against Kremlin uh, propaganda. So Russia has found itself in a position where Russia, what you know, if, if Russia, if you won the lottery in Russia uh, and you gave it all to charity, they would find a reason to find that as some sort of deployment of, of Russian uh, intelligence. It's similar to the idea that, um, you know, the, the Hunter Biden's laptop, this was a deployment of, of Russians, the Russian uh, intelligence agencies. It's a lie. Nobody really is interested in the truth now. They don't reverse engineer their stories. They don't go back and look at the election and say, well, actually, you know what? Russia didn't interfere in the election, really. Uh, you know, let's talk about how America interferes in democracies. It, it carpet bombs them. I know you don't understand. You don't understand that's different. It, <laughs> that's uh, that, that's that's different. Yeah, it's so, okay. It's okay to do that. So that's the key. So, so yeah, so it's okay to do that. So so when 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 America or its proxies, I mean, remember, America's probably killed over ten million civilians since the end of the Second World War, and people say to me, "Oh my God, that's that's ridiculous." They haven't. They have. They've invaded over thirty countries. They've bombed nearly every country and attacked every country in South America. I mean, they've propagated and prosecuted a, a bloody state of, of permanent war uh, globally. Now, I'm not saying because they've done bad, we should accept Russia doing bad. But the facts are, Russia has not done that. Russia has not invaded uh, 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 all around it. R Russia does not have a Monroe Doctrine, which was written back in the 19th century, which basically where President Monroe said, no one's going to fuck around with us in our backyard. And we will invade manipulate or economically crush anybody who threatens our well-being as we see it. I mean, so this whole ideology is not just coming since the 24th of February. This is hundreds of years of anti-Russian bias, xenophobia, fear. It, 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 it was sort of matured through communism. But even in communism, Pravda wasn't banned in the West. Even in communism, you know, you could watch BBC in Moscow and, you know, It was fine. So the ideology now has come to such a critical point. And I think it's come to such a critical point where all efforts and wisdom have been dispelled now in the West regarding how do we deal with Russia? And I know one of the things you want to talk about was how do we get out of this? And how do we stimulate the idea that we could have peace or detente with Russia? Which to me has always been something that I didn't understand. Russian culture is so rich and beautiful. Russian people are so compassionate and loving and nice, just like Ukrainians and Americans. This is about the abandonment in the West of any sort of educated ideology around how do we reach detente. Because the, the United States' entire uh, State Department of Foreign Policy is predicated on, on war. It's not predicated on diplomacy. I mean, I'm writing an article at the moment for, uh, for a couple of places, hopefully it'll be published, that this war was absolutely inevitable, that there was no real interest in a diplomatic solution here because this is the destination for a journey that was begun long before the undermining of the Soviet Union. And that destination is the destruction of Russia as an economic power and as a cultural influencer to its uh, in its region. And that is the destination. Anyone who tells you that, you know, the West doesn't want that, it doesn't want Vladimir Putin hanging on a pole outside the Kremlin, Uh, and what would probably then be uh, the Syriaization or the Libyaization of the Soviet Union, a nuclear power. You've got to remember, post the Second World War, when this friendly, or what had become friendly, and this suspicious friendly alliance against Nazi Germany, 
it almost immediately the, the, the body wasn't dead. Hitler's body was still warm when elements within British intelligence and the Americans to a lesser degree actually contemplated invading the Soviet Union. They actually contemplated uh, using nuclear weapons against great Soviet cities. They actually contemplated, contemplated dividing the Soviet Union into four regions and uh, depopulating other ones. And the Americans actually called that, when they heard, this was a British hatched plan, when the Americans heard it, they gave it the code name Operation Unthinkable. The Americans were so shocked by it. I think when, when, when uh, John F. Kennedy sort of heard about this, he couldn't believe it. But remember, in John F. Kennedy's White House, in his Oval Office, he was presented with plans or learned about plans like um, Operation Mongoose and Operation uh, uh, Northwoods, which was basically that we would fly, Americans, we would fly planes into schools and shopping centers in Florida and Miami and blame it on the Cubans to give us a reason to invade Cuba. So people say, oh, the, you know, people are going to get their head around what the sort of actual um, ideology is here, particularly in the United States, that you solve problems by war through war. So you create the problems by undermining democracies initially. In 1952, the democratic elected government of Mohammed Mossadi, if you're talking about the Middle East, was undermined. You know, I've read all the documents which have been released by the Americans. Uh, he was he was in to, you know a, so, a socialist, but he was a democratic socialist. He wanted to nationalize the British Petroleum Company uh, and essentially try to fix the economy in Iran. He was swept into power, <clears throat> and I've read the memos saying, "Look, we have to." deploy thugs on the streets. They tried to cast him as a pedophile. They tried to suggest that he was corrupt. He was, you know, working with the Russians, etc., etc. And I see the same stuff today. Now, this was all untrue. Now, Mohammed Mossadegh was dead within two years. The Americans and British, the British Petroleum Company, the CIA and MI6, uh, had, had uh, installed the Shah of Iran, who was a brutal monster, who murderously uh, uh, undermined and stole uh, his own people's wealth destroyed the country, and it led to the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And most of the wars in the Middle East that have been prosecuted against the evil Muslims uh, since that period, have their, the germination of that was probably in radical Islam was probably in that, and it was created by America. So America then spends trillions of dollars uh, um, fixing the problems it created through its numb and idiotic and ludicrous short-sighted foreign policy, uh, and then tells the world that they're they're freeing them and they're protecting them from freedom. I mean, I'd, I would defy anybody listening to this to present any evidence to counter anything I've said, anything I've said. And if they can do it, I'm, they can reach me through whatever means they want. This is why, and this is the answer to your question, that is why you must distill the narrative into a tweet, essentially. The Russians are evil. We're the good guys. This is Star Wars. You're either with the Rebel Alliance or you're with Darth Vader. It's very simple. And that's why events, seminal events, the murderous Russians have come across the border and they're massacring people. Forget about the Azov Battalion. Forget about, about IDAR Battalion being funded and paid for. Forget about John McCain standing in a sovereign country in 2015 while the president was still in power calling for re open revolution against a democratically elected parliament the ukrainian people voted yanukovych into power that was a democratic election you don't get to come along and say we don't like something you've done we're going to overthrow you in a bloody violent revolution america 
is traveling the world on the American Freedom Roadshow telling people we need democracy. It's the hub and center and jewel and diamond of everything you do. Neoliberal democracy. But then you have someone like John McCain standing in, in Maidan Square calling for open revolution and saying that the American government will supply and fund them. And it was just absolutely insane. And the people he was standing with, Oleg Tannybrook, violent, fascist, racist, nasty criminals. Okay, that's okay, because there are violent, nasty, nationalist, racist criminals. There are guys. It was the same in when, when uh, you know, uh, there, you know, there is evidence that, um, that America funded elements of ISIS to fight against uh, 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 Russian-backed uh, Assad in Syria. So this is why you must condense it down to good guy, bad guy. The Americans are good. The Russians are bad. And the problem now is that the West has reversed itself into such a position, such a dangerous position, where they could actually lose this war in Ukraine. I mean, remember, these are the guys who just literally ran out of Afghanistan after 20 years spending probably $3 trillion of U.S. taxpayers' money, the good people of the United States, one of the greatest countries in the world, some of the most wonderful people on the planet. Their money was spent there. There's a famine there right now. People clinging to planes. They left $8 billion worth of high-tech military equipment in the hands of their so-called enemy. And from there, they move into Ukraine and deploy the same strategies in some respects. And nobody seems to be looking at this. If American foreign policy was a job applicant, okay, you wouldn't let him into the car park. You'd see the CV and you'd call the cops. You'd look at his resume. This guy's insane. So let's let's go back and look at this, the resume. Yet every administration that gets elected, the same failed policies seem to be predicated. You seem to keep going. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons why, I suppose. You keep going looking for the victory. You know, you've got 20 daughters. You keep going until you get a son. Maybe they're looking for some sort of glowing uh, victory, which is going to allow America to reproduce itself <clears throat> in every part of the world, regardless of cultural and historical realities, religious realities. You know, they want to replicate themselves so that maybe then little Americas can go around causing the same trouble that the big America has. So, that is why you must distill it down to the good guy, bad guy narrative. Because to, 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 to try and relay what I've just spoken about and what we're talking about is more complex. It actually takes time. Like, and this is why I call it the drive-through narrative. You need good, bad, winner, loser. It's much more simple for people who are busy trying to operate in societies which are increasingly impacted by this perpetual war. And you see that in Europe. So... We're in a really, really dangerous and potentially um, uh, pivotal moment, I think, in, in global affairs, where <clears throat> you've got America is all in now in Ukraine, all in. There has been no remote uh, sort of signaling of peace or detente. And as we discussed the Soviet Union, that period when there was a begrudging respect between the uh, KGB and the CIA and the FBI... These guys talk to each other in the bars. I've met and discussed for some of the research I've done, uh, people on the Russian side and people on the American side, who said that we would go and talk in the bars and pubs. We'd play pool. We'd even go to each other's houses and go to barbecues. And we would work stuff out. When the stupid politicians couldn't get it right, we would often get it right. And we, they, they, these guys may have saved us from, from a nuclear catastrophe. 
the, the very dangerous reality now is even the, the advisors in the White House, even the people like Henry Kissinger, who I wouldn't be a huge fan of, they're not being listened to. They're not being listened to anymore. These statesmen, these elder statesmen of the real politic, the real politic of, of, of world politic and ge geopolitics, great powers do not tolerate existential threats on their borders from a competing power. They don't tolerate it. They haven't tolerated it since the Peloponnesian Wars. They don't, they're not going to tolerate it now. Russia is a resurgent power, which sees NATO as an existential threat. NATO can tell its liberal uh, uh, membership as much as it wants that, okay, you know, we're not a threat. <clears throat> we're a defensive alliance. Tell that to the Serbs. Tell it to the Afghans. Li Libyans, I mean, Syrians. They must really think. And they, 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 actually, they actually believe, I think, their own propaganda. And anyway, when you're dealing with a, a, a continent, a nuclear-armed continent with the second biggest um, military on the, on the planet, it doesn't really matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you think. If Vladimir Putin and his uh, government in the Kremlin believe you are an existential threat and they've warned you and warned you and signposted this since the 90s and you have continued to build... Uh, a de facto uh, NATO army in Ukraine, a quarter of a million men, trained and funded, <clears throat> you must sort of pose the question to yourself, why are, you, why are you building that army on my border? Why do you need a quarter of a million men? Is it because, you know, a, a civil war erupted because of your coup and you couldn't manage your own people and then you launched an anti-terrorist operation against them, killing thousands of them, bombing civilians? You've then deployed um, racist, fascist, neo-Nazi uh, brigades like IDAR and Tornado, brutal murderers and child killers. Uh, and you say, we did that because we had to, because the Russians caused this problem. It's just, it, it just factually incorrect. What they've done is they've lit this fire in the East. They expected it, this anti-terrorist operation against the Donbass to be over in two weeks, three weeks. It turned into a, a grinding civil war. And civil wars are ended by the parties sitting around a table and doing a deal. We had one in Ireland. We, we suffered the same ethno-nationalist conflict here for, for, for decades. Our whole history has been defined by that bloody uh, type of war. And we know a thing or two about it. And they're solved by the constituent parts accepting uh, to accommodate each other. That has been entirely dispelled and undermined now as collaboration. If you suggest a peaceful, a negotiated peace in Ukraine is something that should be examined, you are immediately seen as a defeatist, a fifth colonist, a, a Russian spy or agent. So it's essentially now a juggernaut with no brakes. The Americans have sort of um, outlined the rules of the game. There's going to be an absolute winner. People like Ursula von der Leyen say she wants to see the absolute destruction of the, of the Russian economy, which essentially means destruction of Russia uh, as a nation. I mean, your economy is your nation. So Ursula von der Leyen, an unelected apparatchnik from uh, uh, the EU, is telling uh, its great neighbor that they want, they want you destroyed. We have Joe Biden early in the conflict calling, him, uh, calling Vladimir Putin a, a, a genocidal maniac and wanting to declare the Soviet Union a state sponsor of terrorism. These are not phrases used 
when you want to reach detente or even accommodation for peace. So the ideology of peace, the idea of peace has been absolutely rejected by the West in my view. What, and on the other side, let's examine the other side from the Russian point of view. <clears throat> what has Russia got to lose now? What is the motivation or the incentive for Russia now to uh, uh, to look at a deceleration on its goals in what it calls a special military operation <clears throat> or to widen the war uh, um, in other parts of Ukraine? There's absolutely no motivation or stimulus or ideology, which if I was advising the Kremlin, they've deployed everything against us. Everything. They've destroyed, they've tried to attack our culture, music. You know, you can't, you know, in America, you shouldn't be listening to Tchaikovsky, but you can buy an AK-47, you know. So the, the war against Russian culture, it, to me, it defines the absolute war, you know, the psychological absolute war against Russia. And that type of thing happens when you want to license and allow and normalize very brutal things. The Germans did it against the Jews in the 20s and 30s. They dehumanized the Jews. In, in, in Ukraine at the moment, Russian people are considered as orcs. Little babies, little children, elderly people, uh, orcs. It's, it's dehumanizing. And this is psychologically very important because if you want to allow uh, the carpet bombing or the terrorist bombing or the murder of innocent people, you must dehumanize them first. The Germans realized this very early in the war when their Einsatzgruppen, these uh, groups that went across the Soviet Union murdering people, um, reports came back that they couldn't shoot them anymore, but they, they were so getting so screwed up mentally from all this killing. <clears throat> but the dehumanization allowed it to continue. And that's what's happening in the West now. And it's very frightening. It's very scary. And very interestingly, <clears throat> Very interestingly, you also see uh, uh, this turning of a blind eye. I mean, when you see Russian troops, captive troops having their throats cut or being shot in the legs or um, executed by uh, the Ukrainian military, that's okay. They're Russians. They came here. They, you know, they invaded us. This is it. So to dispel all the facts and the realities about how we got to this turn in the road and come back to the moment, the moment the Russians can be killed. Uh, Ms. Denisova, the uh, Ukrainian official who manufactured and made up lies about Russian soldiers raping babies. And, you know, it, it turned out that her daughter had said, why don't we say this moment? She went and said it. Right. There's no uh, reference to that in the press. The attack on Snake Island where the Russian Navy had massacred very noble men who told them to go fuck themselves. Um, when it turned out that the Russians hadn't massacred anybody, they'd put these men on a ship and taken them up the coast. There's no sorry in the in the press. The Mariupol um, maternity hospital. When it turns out that the hospital was empty, and that the Ukrainian military had uh, were using the generators there uh, as a deployment site, so the Russians hid it. Nobody was killed. I think one person was. The lady who was in the hospital in these famous photographs is actually teaching in a Russian school in Donbass at the moment. That's not in the press. It doesn't need to be in the press. And she is willingly giving interviews uh, all over the place. So. People can talk to her. Yeah, but you see, mm. so we this hasn't this 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 movement towards the destruction of Russia. It's a dangerous place. It's been hundreds of years in in the manufacture, and this is now seen as as the 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 fight of all fights. I think by Biden. I mean, I think the, the Biden administration or any no American administration can really tolerate or absorb another catastrophe like Afghanistan. I mean, when you look at the Afghanistan debacle, 
I think uh, I think it was McChrystal or one of the big commanders there early on sort of sent out a memo saying, if anybody knows what victory looks like here, can they please let me know? I mean, this was leaked. This is the this is the the, the, the head of the armed forces there. Nobody knew what victory looked like. What does victory look like in Ukraine for America? I mean, you look at Russia. Russia looks out over its 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 back back wall. It's you know oh, the victory in Ukraine for America is the destruction of Russia. That's that's it. Is 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 the is the somehow well, the I'm glad you said it because if I say it, yeah, yeah. Of course, and it's not. It may not be the destruction of Russia because that's not how it would be portrayed. It'd be the introduction yep. of neoliberal yep. democracy, yep. and that's working out really great in America, where there's 40 million people living under bridges, where drug use is is insane. Where you know where you can walk around the streets with an AK-47. I mean, the idea that the rest of the planet wants to live its life, uh, um, you know, in uh, baseball boots and and you know and a big stars and stripes uh, T-shirt, it's kind of an 80s thing. You're not really. I mean, look what's happening at the moment in the sh- in the shift to a more multipolar world. Well, Russia's placed itself at the center of this. Oh, that doesn't matter. Russia's GDP is the same as Texas. Yeah, but hold on a second. What does Russia actually do? What does it make? What does it create? Heavy metals, energy, weapons, artillery shells. We saw that in the start of this conflict. Oh, Russia will be out of shells in three weeks. They don't know what they're doing. They're running out. Putin's got cancer. Shoigu, the defense minister, he's had a stroke and they've locked him up in a gulag. Nobody's talking about that now because it was all lies, okay? It's conveniently ignored when you're wrong, you know? So here's the other reality. You know, Russia spent the last 50 years preparing for a war with NATO. And everyone said, these guys are absolutely, look at their war. They're so focused on war. They've got massive, uh, you know, a whole city in Tula developed really to make weapons and artillery shells. And well, you're starting to see now why they did that. You know, the Russian people are, are, you know, willing to trade some of their, what we would perceive in the West as freedoms, for stability. Because the Russian people, I believe, understand what instability looks like. <clears throat> they understand what happens when the greatest army ever fielded rolls across Ukraine to villages, cutting babies from women's wombs and dashing their heads out on the sides of buildings. The SS, uh, the Einsatzgruppen, and the Galicia Division, populated by Ukrainians, the UPA and the OUN, all these realities which are very, very softly spoken in the West. No, that's, they're just Diet Coke Nazis. They're the sugar-free Nazis. You know, it's insane. It's insane. I recently, uh, I will send you the link. You, 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 will, you will appreciate it. So I recently um, saw an interview with the last surviving um, victim of uh, Babi Yar, um, massacre uh he was a kid and yeah. uh he, he he was he was uh half ukrainian half jewish but uh living in soviet union he just identified himself as soviet and just uh by some somehow a, a for unfortunate happenstance they didn't manage to leave uh the it, it's a i cried when when i you know the um Anyway, long story short, he saw his basically his whole family exterminated um, at Babi Yar, and who killed them? It was a Ukrainian uh, politician. He he said that he was more afraid of the Ukrainian collaborators than uh, he was of the Germans. Um, I and yeah. the the unfortunate. I, I I found an article recently which. Um, uh, which is called by by a uh, hold on. I'll tell you exactly what it's called. 
It's called uh, The Fascist Kernel of the Ukrainian Genocidal Nationalism. And the article is by a Polish-German uh, historian who um, works at, uh, I think, Freie Universität Berlin. And he is one of the foremost experts on Bandera. And uh, it, it's it's a fascinating article that, basically, in a nutshell, um, the vast majority of Ukraine uh, in '39 was Soviet and uh, had had been Soviet, uh, you know, since since the beginning of the Soviet Union. And uh, the fascism in Ukraine was developed with the effectively the funding of the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, in in uh, in and around Lvov um, or Lembek, as as it was called at that. Uh, that that was basically at the at yeah. the time um, after the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, collapsed. It was uh, under Poland, and if you look at the historical development of yeah. Ukraine, you would see that Lvov had been for seven hundred years. It's been under Poland or Austro-Hungarian Empire, but but mostly Poland. Yeah. And the rest of the rest of the uh, the sure. central and eastern Ukraine were uh, mostly under Russia. Um, the Ukrainian um, hetmanate uh, with with the Zaporizhia Cossacks, uh, they asked, and they had been asking Russian Tsar for protection for uh, under Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the the, the famous uh, leader of the of the Ukrainian Cossacks. Um, so they had a state for for a while. And at some stage, they figured out that uh, they want the protection from the Russian Tsar. And, and I think for 11 years, they tried to, they were basically begging Russian Tsar to, to protect them, at, at which state, uh, you know, at, at some stage, he, he agreed. And uh, then basically, the Russian Empire slowly um, pushed out the, the Polish kingdom through many Polish-Russian wars and also the Turkish Empire. And... and uh, the lands where um, where I'm from, the south of Ukraine, there weren't that many people living there because it was kind of steppe. They were yeah. Well, they're they're, they're, they're actually steppes. They're referred to as the steppe Exa- locally. Yeah, exactly. So so and they they there were a lot of nomads uh, going through there uh, for for hundreds of years, and uh, so when the Russian Empire came, they founded pretty much all the cities. Up and and uh, up and down the Dnieper, and as well as uh, you know around the uh, up to Odessa, yeah, there. which was a very Russian city. Kherson, yeah, Kherson, Nikolaev, essentially built by the Russians. All of these cities were built. Nikolaev was built. When- yeah, and I see that they're they're actively vandalizing the statue to uh, Catherine the Great in, in 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 Odessa at the moment. It's being destroyed. Yeah, who is the who is the founder of the of the you know so she said yeah. When, uh, but that's another inconvenient truth. We have to pretend that never happened. Yeah, I, I, I and it's like, I, I it's, whatever. You, yeah. you. So there were a lot of things to to unpack. I uh, would like. Okay, so uh, no detent. Uh, yeah, because you know, like once you, uh, once you get yourself in the corner where you paint your enemy as the as the devil basically you know it's like well sure you don't like how would you like you don't negotiate yeah. with hitler right or, or the devil it's like there's it's a fight to the death yeah i am wondering uh you know i'm i'm, I'm wondering why is everyone so fucking nuts because this is this does not end well this no. this is not good i i do not see how this ends well so why 
why are we doing this brinkmanship of of raising the stakes like at some stage it's gonna it's gonna be bad and yeah i think i think there's two reasons i think i think there's two reasons because there's an economic reason first of all and uh, you know never underestimate the you know massive influence that the military industrial complex has on on the white house on any white house yeah i mean the american economy is predicated at the moment on the state of perpetual war so what i said now people will argue with that that's not the case mm. it is the case it's absolutely the case so this is good for business in certain quarters the they, the same people who are donors and sponsors of the big political parties in the united states are the same people who are the shareholders <clears throat> and the associated uh a diaspora around the military industrial complex is very, very powerful. And also Ukraine is a very interesting and useful mm-hmm. laboratory for new weapons like the HIMARS systems, uh, like the, you know, anti-radar missiles and stuff which are being used against the Russians at the moment. So it's a very, very uh, uh, profitable business, first of all. Secondly, when you have, as I said, 40 million people living in poverty, a huge drug problem, mass emigration, people being massacred in schools, you can't fix the problem. A massively, uh, a huge schism in American society. There's never been such a divisive and divided society in America since the Civil War, Uh, you know, um, I would suggest. When that happens, it's good to sort of say, okay, we're the good guys now, and we're going to show that by going to fight the bad guys. Even if we've got to manufacture the rationale, ignore massive swathes of historical fact, and also do business and supply and deal with murderers and Nazis, we're going to do that because we need to become the good guy again because right now to our own people, to 76 million of them, we're the bad guys, okay? So last week I saw Joe Biden uh, decree and declare that over 70 million Americans were essentially terrorists. They were bad people because they were supporting uh, uh, President Trump. Now, you know, whatever your views are on President Trump, several of the pillars that have been used to undermine his legitimacy as president have been shown to be false. And I think that is also worrying. But who was, of course, the bad guy in that? No, Putin. Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Of course. So so you got to understand, that's why detente isn't good for those people, because they will have to say, like they've had to say about Iraq, like they've had to say about Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, Grenada. <clears throat> you know, we don't have enough time to talk about the amount of uh, uh, screw-ups they've made, they will have to say Ukraine was a mistake. They will have to accept that while they pretended that they were working towards a diplomatic uh, solution to the Minsk 1 and 2, uh, propping up people like Petro Poroshenko, who was, has admitted recently that the only reason we went along with Minsk was to build up our army so that we could invade uh, Crimea and Russia and purge. I know. It's, he literally said... We got everything out of the Minsk Accords that we wanted. Yeah, which was time. Yeah. Remember, you had NATO. You have you have the Western powers, <clears throat> really America, because Europe has no um, sovereignty anymore regarding foreign policy or economic yeah. policy. It, it doesn't have any. So, so you're talking about America. The only place this war can stop is in the White House. That's the only place because Zelensky has no power. Uh, the European governments have no power. So if Biden picks up the phone to Ursula von der Leyen, maybe the British Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, who's frankly the most stupid woman I've ever heard speak or talk in politics in the history of of, of Western uh, developed thought. She's a, a very stupid woman. Now, 
you're not meant to say the word stupid and woman in the same sentence, but she is a very, very stupid, uh, badly educated and uh, incompetent human being. And uh, she's been, you know, elected by 81,000 people in the in the United Kingdom. There's 62 million people there. So this woman who was elected by 81,000 people in her own party, who are essentially uh, upper middle class uh, toffs in the UK, uh, is now in charge of uh, British foreign policy. And she doesn't even know uh, the difference between, uh, uh, you know, the Baltic Sea and the Balkan Sea. She's, she's a very, very stupid woman. So she's in charge in the same week that their king is uh, <laughs> anointed. She got anointed as well. And, and she was, was, and wasn't she the uh, foreign minister just prior to that? She was, the, she was the top diplomat. During the building of this scaffold to build this massive fire that's now going to consume Europe potentially, she was the top diplomat. Sergei Lavrov, who is probably one of the most seasoned diplomats uh, you know, of the last 50 years, a very uh, capable and uh, uh, smart human being. Now, regardless if you're pro or anti-Russian, you can't deny Lavrov is a, is a master of his craft. He actually walked off a stage with her saying it's like speaking to a deaf, dumb and blind person. And that's not something that a diplomat like Lavrov would usually do, but he did it. And, uh, you know, people sort of looked. She's a very stupid woman. So remember, they've reversed themselves in. There can only be ultimate victory. And that's the talk now. Ultimate victory. Von der Leyen, uh, a doctor by trade, whose uh, parents were both EU bureaucrats, who decided to become an EU bureaucrat, unelected. The actual Bundes, uh, the, the, the German parliament actually were astounded when she got elected to the top job in, in the EU. Again, she wasn't elected by the people of the European Union. Um, so these people are falling over each other to go to Zelensky, who was elected by an oligarch, uh, uh, Koiminski, uh, you, know, you know the guy I'm talking about. Um, uh, the guy, the same guy, by the way, who funded the group. Kolomoisky. Uh, Kolomoisky, yes, sorry, excuse me. He's the same guy who funded the groups in Odessa who murdered yeah. those people in the Union House, which was a seminal event in beginning the, the, the more aggressive uh, um, position of people in the east in the Lugansk and, and uh, uh, Donbass People's yep. Republics because they saw what had happened in, in, in Odessa. The yep. police stood by it and had people to be burned to death for disagreeing with Maidan. That guy who funded a lot of those thugs that day, and this is verified, owned the TV station that Zelensky worked for, lent uh, Zelensky his own personal lawyer and funded his campaign to get elected. Yep. Zelensky is elected on the basis that set over 70% of the Ukrainian people said, he said, I want to end the war and I'm going to stop corruption. Now, so on the 23rd of February this year, Ukraine was probably the most corrupt country, one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. On the 24th of February, it became one of the most corrupt countries on the planet, flooded with weapons, billions of dollars, CIA covert operations, commandos, various other countries. Ukraine has been entirely hollowed out as a sovereign nation now, entirely, economically, militarily and it's sovereignly it's lost 20% of its territory and no real rational thinking strategist that I've spoken to and I know a few I know guys who serve in the military I have a modest military uh, background myself very modest but <clears throat> nobody I know with an education believes that it is possible for Russia to lose this war not only is it po not possible for them to lose because if they do it means the end of uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, entire a political uh, a career it will define him as a failure. <clears throat> um, it'll also destroy Russia economically because it will mean 
bending the knee again to the West as they did in the 90s and look what happened. So it will never happen. Russia will not lose this war. It's existential. And I'm not saying that from a moral point of view that they shouldn't lose the war for any other reason. I'm just saying Russia cannot and will not lose because whatever Russia has to do to turn this into a win, it will do it because the very existence of that nation and that country and its leadership depends on it, which is not the case in the West. Yep. People like John Mersheimer said that, you know, Ukraine had no, no strategic interest to the West. Nothing. It's, but it's got every strategic interest to, to the Russians. Its only strategic interest is that it's a country of, uh, you know, uh, much fewer than 40 million now, but but still tens of tens of millions of people who one yeah. could use, as, as you said, it, it can be used as a um, playground for testing weapons. It can also be used as a battering ram against Russia, because the, the most fascinating part of it all is that it, it's, it's, it's so obvious if you stand back and you go, the common Ukrainians have no interest in this war. In fact, I believe that uh, Putin had no interest in this war, that it was a a decision that uh, was not light and it was a decision of last resort, basically. He was choosing between this and the the worst. Absolutely. I mean, I think this was engineered that Russia would have nowhere to go. When you put 200,000 men on the border of your neighbor, there's two reasons you do it. Uh, if you're do if you're going to do it in order to telegram that you know we're coming, it's done in a more covert way in my view. The deployment yep. centers are further away, and they arrive overnight. You hit the infrastructure on day one. If Vladimir Putin is a genocidal maniac, why didn't he destroy the entire water and electricity and I... civil infrastructure of Ukraine, which is the American playbook? On day one in Iraq, the Americans destroyed every civilian infrastructure and bridge around Baghdad. In the first week, they killed over 7,000 civilians. The UN would say that less than 7,000 civilians have died, even on the base of UN uh, data, which is quite you know dubious in some respects now because they've been hollowed out by the West, of course. Where's the headquarters of the UN? Anyway, this is just my view. It's, it's hardly uh, an absolute uh, authority. But less than that have died in Ukraine. It's horrendous that people are dying at all. I'm, I'm, I'm on record as saying I'm against the war. I'm against any violence whatsoever. But the reality is that if, if Russia wanted to perpetrate a genocide, uh, as in Rwanda, or as what the Germans did against the Jewish people or against the gypsies or the Poles, if Russia wants to do that, it has the capacity to do that. Uh, I think three days ago, in two and a half hours, they destroyed half of the uh, electricity uh, infrastructure in Ukraine in two and a half hours. I mean, the problem many hardliners in in Russia would suggest is that Russia is trying to perpetuate a war or prosecute a war while calling it something else. It's half committed and it's not. And this is what's led to the problems, the the strategic issues in in, in around uh, Izium and uh, uh, Balaklaya around Kharkiv. Kharkov. So... I mean, that, this is, when you see, actually, you know, no, no strategist could suggest, uh, or anyone with a military uh, background or, or education could suggest that Russia has uh, attempted to perpetrate a genocide. It's absolutely ludicrous. But when you're in Russia and you are uh, um, seeing this signaling and you're hearing this language, genocide, war crimes, mass murder, you're Hitler, you know, the ignorance about Hitler and Putin, I did a tweet recently, you know, 
Vladimir Putin's brother died of uh, dysentery uh, in the apartment in Leningrad where his mother and father were. His father fought on the uh, um, uh, on the Eastern Front. His uncles died there. His uh, grandmother was shot by the Nazis. And then the the, the ignorance, the st- astounding ignorance for me is defined by trying to compare Vladimir Putin to Hitler. If the Kremlin or the Russian military and the president of Russia decided at two o'clock today that Kiev wouldn't exist by two o'clock the next day, that that could happen and it, it could easily happen. Not a single road, bridge, rail tunnel, water infrastructure would exist. And if Russia was prosecuting this uh, operation or war, according to the American playbook, which we've seen deployed in the Middle East, every part of the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine would be destroyed in 48 hours. It's called shock and awe. You can look it up or you can look at the videos. So that, again, is absolutely factually incorrect. It's dishonest. And it only perpetuates the uh, hatred and the dehumanization of Russians because people refuse to interrogate the facts. And they're only interested in this absolute truth, which is there's one truth. If you defer from that truth, it's almost like a medieval religious dictate, okay? Like the Spanish Inquisition. So you either believe in our truth or you're a liar or you're with the enemy. So people are getting their heads down. Similarly, when um, Azov Battalion rolled into Mariupol back in 2015, very quickly they abduct people, they murder them, they terrorize them, they rape people, they put them in secret prisons. And the population very quickly understands we don't associate with Russia, you know, because there's one truth. So the Azov had an absolute truth. Uh, the Germans had an absolute truth. You know, you're with us, you're with the Fuhrer, you're against us. The Americans had an absolute truth in 9-11 when all of their horrendous um, perpetual war came home to roost in, in a brutal attack uh, by Wahhabists from Saudi Arabia, essentially funded, flew their planes into the buildings, killing 3,000 innocent people. America then prosecutes a war on terror, which kills a million people, probably 350,000 civilians. And it says, you're either with us or against us. They actually dictated that. Remember, France was vilified. You know, freedom fries, not French fries, because France said, hold on, this is an illegal war. We're not going to war. Freedom fries. So it's with us or against us. And remember this. When people look at people like uh, North Korea and Iran, and they talk, you know, these guys, you know, these guys, you know, they want a nuclear weapon. Do you think Russia would exist today if it didn't have nuclear weapons? Of course not. It wouldn't have existed well already for a long time. Do you think you think Israel would exist? Nope. nope. Without nuclear weapons. And isn't it funny and interesting that the only country on planet Earth who has ever used nuclear weapons aggressively against a civilian population in two cities, murdering millions of people, essentially, over the the protracted time that this thing has affected the Japanese people, potentially millions, hundreds of thousands anyway, excuse me. The only people that have ever deployed one of those weapons in war now get to say who gets to have one. So that that's kind of the rationale. It's our truth. It's the absolute truth, with us or against us. You get that in families now. If I talk to certain people in my own group, uh, they say, what are you doing that stuff on Twitter and writing those articles for? You know, they're murderers, they're evil. You know, so you get it at a local level, which is where it's deployed in a granular level. 
and at the, the, the micro level. Then there's the macro level in societies. Yes, we're terminating everything with Russia. Russia, we're banning, we're pulling down the, the statues in Estonia and Latvia, Lithuania. You know, this is how it, the, the, the job is done. And the job is done to license and allow and to uh, ameliorate brutality against Russia. Uh, and that may ramp up further as we as we come to a stage where they realize that they can't really uh, win a proxy war in Ukraine because it's unwinnable. Because, as I've said, Russia will not tolerate losing the war. They cannot tolerate it because it's terminal for Russia, potentially. But it is a sort of an a la carte view from the West that they maybe could or not or they'll pull out or they'll throw Zelensky under a bus or, you know, or we'll work something out. They've done it before. They've done it in Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq. They come in, they free the shit out of the place. And then they find a reason to pull out. So that could happen in Ukraine. I Excuse the will, language for our more sensitive listeners. Oh, we, we swear. No, no, no. It's, you know, it's okay. This this podcast is rated R for, for that reason. I, I, I uh, as I was setting it up, I uh, knew some people I definitely wanted to get on. And uh, I they swore like a sailor. That's, that's, that's fine. Okay, so on the one hand, I, 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 I mean, I know all of this, right? It's consistent with it. I, I'm just fucking depressed now. <laughs> I also uh, just, 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 just by having a, um, by having a, uh, uh, I, I never really had any connection to Russia, right? So uh, was 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 in Leningrad when it was still. Well, you're Russian now. After talking to me. Yeah. No, I no, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm. Here we got a break in the connection, and then we recorded the final part of this dialogue. Uh, Andre, I've got a little bit of time pressure now. Yeah, no worries. No, I worries. didn't realize That's, we were uh, on so long. When you're when you're talking to somebody that you actually enjoy having a conversation with, time goes so much quickly, so much yeah, faster. That is that is that is true. Well, okay, so I, I I made a couple of notes, and as you said, there there's there's been hundreds of years, and and I'm, I'm looking at the at the history, yeah. So uh, somebody recently wrote on uh, on Twitter that uh, or somewhere that uh, actually Ukrainian uh, uh, a Ukrainian anti-Zelensky journalist in exile lives in uh, lives in you know ran away from the ukrainian uh, de- de- democratic <laughs> freedom of speech uh, yeah. uh, president uh, has has to live in spain um, i guess there are worse places to live you know to have to live in but that's okay so he he basically said that um, <laughs> the west uh, gets about well, one one chance in a 100 years to destroy russia and uh, yeah, this is know. it yeah, this is it. So okay, so all the all the chips are in the are in the middle. So they, it seems like they've been going all in. And from that point of view, it makes sense that we are facing, uh, you know, what what I would call peak russophobia. I I've never ever seen a such a concerted effort at at uh, pain, not even with China. Yeah? yeah, and and I suspect that once the Taiwan situation blows up, which I kind of now expect to in the next. It's inevitable. It really isn't it. Yeah, in the next twenty-four months, uh, yeah. may, may, maybe you know, I think uh, like thirty-six months at the most. Yeah. I, I I expect to be seeing exactly the same narrative being against uh, you know against China, 
But at the moment, we're living through, and that's consistent with your observations, right? So we're living through this peak, peak russophobia. As- yeah, but of course, now what, what, what the Americans have done is create this beast economically and uh, strategically and militarily, potentially. I mean, we haven't seen Russia and China um, you know, cooperate militarily mm-hmm. yet, but we've seen Iranian yeah. drones, which are some of the best on in the world, despite American sanctions. So it's actually interesting yeah. to look at the drones, the Shahid drones that are now being used in Ukraine. These were developed under brutal yeah. American sanctions. So, you know, the idea that sanctions work is another they, they only work, they they only work to antagonize the people who they're applied against. I mean, you know, this, the sanctions were yeah. applied also against Germany after the First World War. Where did that go? It, it, <laughs> yeah. it's, well, I think the sanctions after, in that period created Adolf I, Hitler. They created I, the I, Nazi I, 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 I don't disagree. And, and, and so I, I don't... I, I mean, this is like... All of this is fucking insane. This is like... I, I still... So I, w- I was going to say why now, but I guess from it, it almost like it doesn't really matter whether it would have been now or a year earlier or a couple of years later because the yeah. the long-term trends were pointing this way. Now this hatred of or this russophobia or or the you know the geopolitical games uh do go back hundreds of years uh british empire was was doing the you know as as you said starting with the the great game in afghanistan uh the yep. uh crimean war and 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 various uh, various things i am wondering like is this just just a fear of potentially losing a um uh, the position uh, the, the, of leadership of hegemony, or no. is it also uh, Russia is blessed? Yeah. But if you, I think if you look if you look at the the, the chessboard, yeah. okay, the United States is an empire in decline. Yeah, and empires in decline do some radical things to number one distract from their internal problems and. The best thing to do if you if you know if your internal population is essentially, I mean, there is an ideological civil war um, running in the United States. I'd suggest, and I think the catalyst for that is probably the Trump presidency. And I'm not suggesting that he's responsible for it, like a lot of uh, Democratic voices would say. I think that Trump represented, a, a, you know, generational um, frustration with the elite, the political elite. Same things happen. It's a popular sort of uprising. It's happening at the moment with the brothers in Italy. It's happening in places like Moldova, actually. There's a significant protest going on against Sandu. So people retreat towards more uh, conservative ideologies. Conservative religion is on the rise across the globe. Um, Neoliberal sort of uh, unipolar globalism has failed a lot of people on the ground. It's made a lot of money for big corporations like Facebook and uh, Google. It's, it's, it's done a lot of good things for a, a small amount of people, but it's essentially failed the people of the United States. It's failed in the Rust Belt. It's failed to protect uh, people in religious minorities who are more conservative. And I think they have now found a home in, in the Trump and the MAGA campaign. And I think what the West, the NATO and Western EU uh, tripartite, if you like, 
have done now is number one, they've, you know, any analyst in the United States that would say, what are the greatest threats to the United States, you know, hegemony uh, economically would have been the rise of China. And China has a couple of problems. It has a demographic problem that it's not producing enough human beings. And it also had a problem regarding raw materials and stuff. So they've now pushed Russia towards China. And China and Russia aren't traditionally, uh, you know, very cozy. They've tolerated each other. They fought wars with each other. They've had disagreements, particularly ideological ones, when the Soviet Union, the Soviet communism and Chinese communism and Maoism and Vietnam and very difficult times they've passed through. Opium war, like there's been a lot of problems. But now... The enemy of my enemy is my friend, of course. And what America has done, and I can't believe that this was unwitting, that somebody didn't say, you do realize that if, you know, we're we're encircling Taiwan and we've got American aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. And the clue's in the name, by the way, I say to people. An American aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. You know, that should say, that should, you know, ring a few alarm bells. It's not a Chinese aircraft carrier in the Hudson River. You know, but anyway, I digress. So you've got basically a, a, a new global potential economic and military uh, uh, balance emerging. So the multipolar world and Vladimir Putin spoke about this uh, in Samarkand and he spoke about it in Sochi. And he's been speaking about this idea that the oppressed peoples of the world don't want to be a slave to the dollar anymore. Uh, you see Chinese investment into Africa isn't in weapons uh, airfields and bombing and you know tactically militant interventions. The Chinese are building roads and hospitals, ports, uh, LNG terminals. They're building infrastructure and they're invigilating themselves into this uh, continent through building. They're building an empire. They're building access, this new Silk Road. And Russia, I think, sees itself also regionally, potentially, as somebody who can uh, can perpetuate that maybe in the east, east of Europe. And we also already see countries like Hungary and Serbia rejecting the EU narrative. So Vladimir Putin was playing a sort of geopolitical game. And remember, we, he hasn't deployed his, one of his greatest uh, uh, weapons yet, which would be to, you know, the energy crisis in Europe, which is going to cause huge social and geopolitical uh, problems for the small liberal parliaments. Vladimir Putin doesn't really have to worry that much about... Uh, public opinion. His public opinion, his ratings are very high if you if you believe the polls. Even the most skeptical polls would suggest that, that he's, he's very popular. And again, you've got this Russian ideology that we will trade some of our freedoms for stability because we know what the world looks like when Napoleon or Hitler or NATO now wants to nibble away at our border and wants to destabilize us. So, so you've got this ideology where America has now created a really much more powerful Russia in some ways, potentially, and a much more <coughs> powerful China, which has endless supplies of, of, of uh, energy, endless. They're currently going to, they're, they're looking at building a dedicated pipeline. So it comes down to what does Russia make? What does China make? I mean, can America afford an economic war with China? Robert, uh, John Pilger wrote a fantastic, did a fact, the documentary must be 10 years ago now, The Coming War with China. He saw this stuff coming. And you say, can we really afford that? Can America afford that? Can, can America afford a war over uh, Taiwan where all of the planet's semiconductors are basically uh, built? I mean, so the one thing that may temper American militarism may be American uh, uh, economists. 
When someone whispers in the ear of an American president, you know, you're going to screw the whole economy. Your donors are going to stop supporting you. We're going to lose power here over this. That may be the one little light at the end of the tunnel that pushes people towards an accommodation. Because I don't think there's going to be detente. I don't think Russia and America are going to have normalized diplomatic yeah. relations in the in the sense that they're working together against common threats, environment, Does, Islamic it, terrorism, it. as they did for periods in the past. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen because America, you know I mean, you're not going to ask a guy to come around to your house for a barbecue who you heard openly say on your street, I want to kill that guy. I want to hang him off that tree. He's a mass murderer. He beats the crap out of his wife and he's a pedophile. So what are you going to do? You're going to call that guy down and say, hey, come on, let's have a barbecue. No, you're not going to Water gonna do under that. the bridge. You're not going to Water under the bridge. Let's... Yeah, let's, it's, let's, it's not water under the bridge forward. because this let's is basically... Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's kind of the analogy of walking into a bar and, you know, America walks into a bar. It sees Russia having a beer up there. Big, big guy, big cage fighter. And he taps Ukraine in the shoulder. He says, go up there and slap that guy in the, in the face. You'll knock him out. We got your back. Ukraine goes up and it gets the crap kicked out of it. And then Ukraine goes, hey, America, come help me. Like Georgia. Like uh, Pearl Sakasvili was told, yeah, take on the Russians. We got your back. You'll be in NATO in five years and in the EU. It's all going to go great. Look what happened to Georgia. And I think there's an element to that. Now, I think the way Ukrainians have fought so valiantly for their, for their territory, whatever the ideology is, you see, you know, people saying, well, these are Slavs. These are tough. These are tough people. And the Russians are just as tough. So this is a knife fight to the death, essentially. And it just so happens that Russia probably has more fuel in the tank, more territory, and bigger allies that are willing to commit to help it, like China now. Does anybody really believe that an American administration or president is going to predicate the survival of their political or uh, um, you know, their career on winning or losing in Ukraine? There'd be a lot of ways to make a, a loss look like yep. a win. There's yeah. lots of ways to undermine Zelensky. There's lots of ways to sort of hold your hands up and say, you know what, Zelensky lied to us. You know what, the Nazis were about after all. But guess what? We're going off to, we're heading over to Taiwan now. See you later, guys. And Ukraine is left back in the 12th century, you know, essentially economically. And anyone who also believes that Western aid to Ukraine has no cost is also deluded. The idea that a country could fight a proxy war against a superpower, which is what Russia is really, if you've got that many nuclear weapons and enough energy that you're warm and your adversaries are freezing to death and their economies are collapsing, that's called being a superpower, in my view. If anyone believes that there's no cost to this, sovereignty-wise to Ukraine, uh, economically to Ukraine, you know, it's absolutely delusional. Who's going to mind that baby? Now, who's going, to pay, who's going to mind that baby while their own economies are collapsing? You're already seeing this schism in the EU where people are saying, we can't convince our electorate anymore that giving billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine while freezing and our economy collapsing is a good well, idea. And you know why you can't convince them that it's a good idea? Because it's not a good idea. On the other hand, on, sometimes it's that simple. 
Sometimes it's that simple economically and strategically and geopolitically. We have to look for a complex solution. This is just a bad so idea. I, maybe, maybe let's uh, let's let's have a kind of final thing uh, because I, Annalena Baerbock is uh, basically said she doesn't care what her uh, constituents. <laughs> so. It's just it's just so insane. I know, but 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 hence the point. I don't. Where are the grown-ups in the room? Why why are we why? So first of all, where are the grown-ups in the room? Second of all, why is EU so impotent? This is incredible. The level of I I uh, I'm in Germany basically has US bases there. Okay, so I I think they 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 never you know became an independent nation, regardless mm-hmm. of what my German friends uh, w- would say. And there there are a lot of but but you know in reality they have no. Uh, own. It's clear that they do not have an own foreign policy. I think they used to. I I think the fact that they got the basically build a Nord Stream two showed that they did have a. But you know, the Americans basically uh, forced them to shut it down. I am surprised about France uh, because <laughs> yeah. that seems completely impotent uh, as well. I'm why? Well, What's I think as well, as well, Andre. Something very interesting from a military point of view, and I've read a lot of, you know, strategy. You know, I, I did a master's in strategic studies, which is about military thinking, how you think militarily, you know, Karl von Clausewitz, you know, all the way through, you know, how do you prosecute a war? War is diplomacy by another means, all that stuff. I think, and it's not something I've heard mentioned anywhere else, maybe people are uncomfortable saying it. I think the Western powers, European powers, are now seeing what a real war between two combined arms armies with air forces looks like. They're starting to say, this is what we were thinking of doing with the Russians during the Cold War. The Russians would have steamrolled NATO aside, probably in significant tracts with a vast artillery-based doctrine, which has been proven. Now, this is with Russia with the gloves on to some extent as well. If Russia was to unleash its full power, I mean, Russia probably has another three gears to go before it's in top gear. Now, Russia moves slowly, but it learns fast. It's like the stuff in Izium. Oh, it's catastrophe. It's a huge defeat of Russia. The Russians pulled out of Izium to the terrible consequences of the Russian-speaking and uh, people there, which is the big issue here. But from a military point of view, if Ukraine had it done in Mariupol with the Azov Battalion, what the Russians just did in, 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 in Kharkov region, Oblast, they wouldn't have lost the metals, the steel core of their military in the south, and they'd still be fighting there. So Russia's been pragmatic. It moves slowly, but it learns fast. Russia won't repeat that mistake. You may see a counteroffensive in in Kharkov now. So the reality is, I think, these Western leaders go, you know, we're eating, you know, avocado toast and deciding what kind of latte to have. Well, the Russians have been, you know, uh, prosecuting a, a combined arms war, as have the Ukrainians. And very interestingly, uh, Aristovich, who's a lunatic, but a very entertaining lunatic, actually, you know, he's an interesting man to listen to. He occasionally I, I, tells the truth inadvertently. Can I, can I say that? No, I disagree. I think he's very smart and yeah. has completely no scruples. And and, and he's been... Yeah, he's yeah, been yeah. I, I, I'm saying he's a lunatic in that in a good... I find him really entertaining and interesting. I, he, 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 he actually he, said that if NATO... He actually said this, right? Get, get this. He actually suggested that, you know, somebody was commenting on how tough the Ukrainian army are and how tough the Russians are. And he said, 
if you guys don't give us enough weapons to fight the Russians, we're going to probably join together and take over Europe. And then you'll have a real problem. Now, that was said in sort of jest, but that's there's a core of truth to that in that these Western elites who have basically hollowed out their military, they're more concerned about using the right pronouns in their armed forces than how much artillery shells they have to fight a protracted war. I mean, Europe, Vladimir Putin either willfully or not, and you'd have to suggest, I don't think Vladimir Putin makes mistakes. I just don't see him as that kind of mistakes guy, okay? That's why he's not jumping up and down, you know, screaming, oh my God, terror and horror about what's happened, this reversal in, in Kharkiv. I just don't believe he's the kind of guy, I think he thinks in years, whereas the EU is now thinking in minutes at the moment because they don't know what they're going to do in relative minutes when the gas turns off. So I think the EU have seen now, this is what a war looks like. And they've also seen that Russia's willing to go to war. If Russia uh, sees an existential threat, it signposts that threat. It does its best, in my view, to allay that and to defuse the potential for war. I mean, I remember three or four days prior to the actual uh, first tanks going over the border into Ukraine, I remember Putin saying, Ya ne vojna. Ne He said, I don't want war. And I, he, was, he, he meant that. I mean, you don't deploy the army and telegraph were coming if you've already decided for an invasion. I don't believe that was the case. I believe this was a very big saber-rattling exercise by Russia to show we will come. We did go into Syria and act against ISIS, as well as the West. All the West did was faff around. So I think he had staked his reputation as a tough guy, a hard man, a very powerful you know, leader, and that he would sacrifice whatever was necessary to sacrifice for the long-term survival of Russia. And people said, Russia's not under any threat. Really? Russia's not under any threat? They were saying, that Russia's not, we're not a threat to Russia, said NATO. We don't want Russia to be gone. What are we hearing the leaders of, of, of the Western world talking about now? The Russian leader is a genocidal maniac. Uh, the Russian culture and society needs to be stripped out. It needs to be destroyed. It needs to be carved out and, and uh, gentrified because these people are essentially savages. So it's all part of that narrative. Right, and but... It only goes to one place. The sort of the, the apex of the triangle is this military conflict, and so that's why this is this is an age-defining war. I mean, the the the, the globalist the, the globalism ended on the twenty fourth of February. It ended. It was the end of globalism for for many reasons. You know, moving to capital, America seizing Russia's sovereign assets, stealing them, saying. You know, no one's going to put, you know, China has massively divested out of American controlled bonds because they know when the war comes, which the Americans are telling us is going to come. Why build this quarter of a million man army in, in Ukraine if there was no war coming? Russia's saying this. Why are you doing this? Why are you uh, torturing and, uh, um, you know, per you're perpetrating a genocide against ethnic Russians on the edge of our border with a NATO de facto army? And you're telling us that we're the threat to stability in the region. It just doesn't add up. And again, if anyone would give me the platform to debate them publicly, which they won't. I mean, Irish media, I don't exist in the Irish media. Because I, I believe, because I think I can debate what we've debated here. And I, I can see no factual or rational based uh, counter argument to what I'm saying. But again, it doesn't matter. Because modern history began on the 24th of February when Vladimir Putin rolled out of his big bearskin rug in the Kremlin, took a pin and stuck it in a map and said, I'm going to go and commit a genocide.
So back to my question, though, about the EU. Why why are they so impotent? Because they don't seem to be acting in their own best interests. The the the, the leaders of the EU. They seem to be shooting themselves in the foot and and just following whatever the US. Well, they, they've already done it, and I mean, I think they see what a real war looks like now, and they don't want to engage in that, even though they're doing it through a proxy means. And I think they misunderstood the realities of 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 these boomerang sanctions, as they call them, which is essentially the greatest act of self-harm in modern history. I mean, it's insane. You know, we didn't stop drinking German beer. You know, uh, we didn't stop, uh, you know, eating falafel because uh, America tells Muslims are bad. It's, it's insane. If Germany is the beating heart of the European economy, maybe the Western, the whole the whole continental economy. If that's the beating heart, the, the, the blood that flows through that heart is Russian gas. And that's the reality. Nobody wants to say it. Well, or we're going to set a few solar panels out in the North Sea and they'll be ready in 15 years. Really? Okay. That's the solution. The almost infiltration of rational economic thinking by the green uh, lobby in Europe has left Europe so badly exposed regarding energy it's, it's unbelievable. The Irish Minister for Energy is the leader of the Green Party. Now, the Green Party in Ireland have less than 2% of the popular vote, and he's in charge of energy. And he recently threatened, I think, to take people to court for burning turf, which is a kind of old, you know, thing, people in the bogs, in the, in, out in the Irish steppe, you might call it. It's much smaller. And people just said, this is the, where the focus is on energy. The whole ideology that there could be another war, there could be a destabilizing uh, reality that could arrive on us. This idea that we're living at the end of history, not on the on the curve of a wheel where we've no idea what's going to happen. Meanwhile, allowing the United States to cultivate and generate and build these huge tinderboxes globally that just take a small ethno-nationalistic conflict to ignite them. That's all ignored because we're at the end of history. And if someone does something wrong... We're just going to blame them and we're going to perpetuate the suicidal, uh, self-destructive sanctions against Russia. And it's just, I really just can't get my head around how anybody in Europe isn't huddled in a room going, we need to get the fuck out of Dodge. This needs to end today. You know, I just don't understand how it's not happening. I, but, I, I, I don't either. either. And, and you're in Europe at the moment. I have not been, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I left in 2013, so... Uh, I, I lived in Germany for ten years. I, I, I do hold um, German elites, um, especially Western Germans, to be. I do think that Merkel was good because she was an Eastern German. I, well, I do uh, think that. Uh, speaking Germans of Merkel, I was going to say earlier. Yeah. Do you believe that if Angela Merkel was in charge in Germany, this war would have happened? Tough to say because she she did preside over the you know over Ukraine not doing anything on the Minsk Accords for yeah. you know for for. But uh, I think many she was years. fairly adamant that that was the solution. I think her and the French, the French and the Germans, I think were as close to honest brokers as you were going to get. But I think it was being undermined by the US at every could, stage. Could could ve- could very well be. They were in the ear of the minority nationalists in in Ukraine, yeah. and plus Zelensky, yeah. you know. I think may have had some uh, desire or belief that he could 
bring peace. But I think as soon as the the the, the far right got in his ear, I think he was actually threatened. I've read he was he was, and also uh, and, you know, that that you know if you do you see the single meter of territory, and and you're, you know you're you're finished, you know. So the far right is one thing. The other thing is what happened. So apparently, uh, in in Istanbul, uh, you know, at the in the early stages of the conflict, yeah. Uh, the British, the, the delegations, uh, yeah, and straight after that, uh, Boris Johnson yeah. cancels everything, flies to yeah. you know, and the and yeah. and there well, was remember a domestically Johnson mm. was facing absolute destruction. Yeah. So again, we spoke earlier on about what do you do when you know you got forty yeah. million people living in uh, in poverty? Well, you you say, hey, look over here, look over there. Mm. There's a big, dangerous, uh, evil empire there. Well, we need to go and fight, and you know Johnson. Has 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 cultivated that. I mean, Britain has huge problems again, culturally, socially, economically. Uh, Brexit, a lot of problems, and it's far better for him to be seen as the all noble knight in shining armor, handing Britain stockpiles of uh, defensive weapons uh, over to Ukraine and giving them billions in aid. While, of course, he's not he's not even in London. He's over there being the hero. So you can't underestimate how wars are prosecuted according to political timetables and elections. If you look at it through history, it's very interesting. Richard Nixon knew that they were losing the war in Vietnam, but he didn't want to admit it or to pull out. He wanted to hand it on. Joe Biden was handed this, uh, <laughs> the Afghan withdrawal by, by Obama. By, by These Trump. guys perpetuate their wars according to their political uh, 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 calendars and it's so skeptical and so cynical you'd say they would never do that really um, the Americans wouldn't drop nuclear warheads on Nagasaki and Hiroshima kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people to demonstrate to the Soviet Union don't fuck with us this war's over but it could go very dangerous places if you don't do as you're told the attack on Japan was a big arms fair it was showing what we've got and what we're going to do hmm. And anyone who says otherwise is, is delusional. I wrote an, a paper actually in, in 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 the university, and I argued that that the 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 bombing of Nagasaki was probably justified because it saved a lot of American lives. When I look back at what I wrote, I go, Jesus, what a fool! When you see how the tentacles of economics and geopolitics and morality are so enmeshed in in a profit motive that you say. You know, how, how foolish was I to believe that this was done in any sort of way to defend anybody? It was done to put this in the shop window. We are the dominant power now in a unipolar world. And America based all its foreign policy and all its economic policy on the basis of that dominance up until very recently. And now China and Russia, the one sentient thing that's come from this is probably this, this uh, alliance between Russia and China, which could become the greatest challenge to a declining United States empire that it's ever faced. What do we do as individuals when we're faced with just, a, you know, a pile of garbage from the, uh, from, from the media? Because ultimately, okay, so I'm, I'm, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just, Fuck, this is depressing. I, I, I really hope that whoever is listening to this, if, if they listen this far, that, that they, uh, you know, they... So first of all, I, I, I think, right, um, it's undeniable. So the, 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 the propaganda, the misrepresentation, the active manipulation of the, of the facts is undeniable. Um, 
you mentioned Denisova. I, I, I'm sitting on a couple of articles that are currently in the draft mode. By the time this is published, maybe I'll, I'll publish them. But yeah, I go into detail. And uh, in particular, um, uh, New York Times actually quoted Denisova and published that article and, and her daughter, Kvitko, and published that article two days after there had been a huge piece in the Ukrainian media and translated into English about how Denisova made all of that shit up together with her daughter. So there is an English language source on the internet, easily discoverable, which says that literally everything that Denisova said was invented. New York Times publishes an article after that saying, quoting her and presenting that as fact. So that's it, 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 it's, and, and the, the authors of that New York Times piece, um, one of them has a Russian surname and the other one has a Ukrainian surname, from which I assume that they are either Russian or Ukrainian. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It's kind of, yeah, I'm going to say a blasphemous thing and say like it's the same people anyway. Uh, so my point is that they know, they, they must have known about this investigation. They must have known that Denisova had been fired one month prior to that. They must have known yeah. the reasons. There was no, there is no logical, there is no plausible deniability. It's not an article that came out in April, right? Which is when most of these articles came out. But it, it is an article that came out at the end of June, as I say, two days after a, a, a recorded English language and and Ukrainian and Russian language material came out saying that Denisova lied, made all of this up, all of it, like all the horrible monstrosities about about Russian soldiers raping, I don't know, six months babies with a teaspoon and whatever. It's just, it's just in like honestly incomprehensible filth that I don't even know who could make up, and so they presented as a fact. So we know that the um mainstream media lies right and in this particular case they the lie is so blatant that it's uh, it's it's not even funny so but how do we counter that because as you said like you're an independent um uh journalist and like you you're willing to to debate nobody's giving you a platform uh people are being deplatformed uh, scott ritter had been you know removed from twitter for asking sensible questions and, and, and claiming sensible things. Of course, he's also an agent of Putin uh, because he's also married to, to, to a Russian woman. So, you know. Yeah, well, this he, is it. He could, I mean, he look, could be deplatformed. But how, what do we do? You, what do we do? Yeah. Well, what you do is what we're doing. That's the first thing I'd say. Okay. What you do is what we're doing. You, you have uh, competent discussions. You to demand that the facts define the narrative, that the narrative doesn't define the facts. You demand that, as you would in a court of law, as you would in a pathologist's office looking at a dead body as why this person died. You don't allow emotion and, you know, uh, you don't allow yourself to be led. You have to base everything you do on fact. And I'd like to think that the discussion we've had today has been based on facts, not even opinions. I don't even have an opinion about about this stuff other than the facts tell me that we're not being told the truth and that uh, foreign policy analysts and those that press the buttons to, to launch these conflicts, their motivations are very dubious at best and ignorant, you know, ignorant at worst and dubious at best and maybe 
motivated by a different motive than sort of some sort of moral obligation to do the right thing. The right thing is always peace, but the wrong thing isn't always war. When you're faced, as the Russians were in the east of Ukraine, with either defending themselves um, or becoming the victim of these uh, fascist battalions, you know, they had no no recourse to do anything else, as we didn't in Ireland. People, I, I, you know, in, in the north of our country, you know, a, a British statelet was formed where there was a significant minority of Irish Catholic people who were treated like the blacks were in Alabama or the Jews were in, you know, uh, in, 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 in Germany. You, you have to stand and fight for what's right, but you have to also have a dialogue and you have to have a rational, moral argument based, in fact, to define that stuff. The problem is the, the, the absolute truth brigade suggests that you can only believe what we believe. And even to have this discussion, I mean, will we'll, we'll be... You know, and another thing is a, a great shield against actually listening to our discussion today for people in, in on this NAFO lunacy or, or these, you know, apologists will say, you know, I'm not listening to that, it's propaganda. So they refuse to listen to the fact-based analysis presenting historical fact, geopolitical facts, reality. So the shield against... Uh, um, becoming inoculated against it, or becoming or challenging that disease of, of 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 simplification, is I can't listen to that guy. I can't listen to Bose. He's a Kremlin. He's a Putin. He's paid for by the Kremlin. Well, there's no evidence I'm paid for by the Kremlin whatsoever. But there's significant evidence of what I'm saying is true. But no one will argue with me on it in a public platform. I mean, no one's bringing me on to the evening news when the Irish foreign minister says, oh, what's happened in Izium is why we're fighting in Ukraine. No one's bringing me on in, or, in order to, to, to do that stuff. I, and I have to ask myself, why? It's a bit like, why ban Russia today? Why ban all Russian media? Why are you scared of? If, if, if they're wrong, allow people to make that decision. If yeah, Russia's lying... To me, that's indefensible, uh, even from, from, from everything that we tell ourselves about the freedom of speech and, and, and whatever, that's, that's indefensible. Whatever is happening to Graham Phillips in the UK, where they uh, basically seize, seize, like, that's, that's just nuts. Like, that's, it is indefensible. The, they become, I mean, the, the Western media and the Western uh, uh, powers that are, issuing these diktats against people like Alina Lip, Eva Bartlett, and, and the chap you mentioned, they become the very worst of what they said the Soviet Union was, funnily enough. And, and interestingly which is, enough... And, which, again, you can't yeah. say that because that's... Oh, it's different. It's different. Yeah, it's different. We, we, because it's a, it's a democracy. Because you go back to the truth narrative, which is... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because it's, a, it's by definition, it's like you go back to the, just that one axiom, with, which is just because yeah. it's different. So it's, it's allowed here and it's not allowed. The, the funny thing that, uh, and you probably, I've, I've never really followed uh, the Russian media. Uh, I did get to, to read a lot and listen to stuff. <laughs> it's ironically way more diverse than the than the Western. I mean, people are, people are criticizing Kremlin. I, I've been in Russia several times and nobody's ever told me what to think what to yeah. say or what to believe I, nobody far more people have told me here than over there what i should say or what i should say it's it's insane 
but I hope to do a bit more work on that and write a bit more about it. Andre, I've got to go. I've got a oh, thing now. Look, coming Jay, up. thank you so I'm much. I'm so look, sorry, you know, but hopefully we can do it again. And uh, I, I'd I, love to develop the relationship and keep talking. I, I There's so would, much to I talk would about. Love, I would love that as well. Yeah.